All right, Proverbs 13. We're looking at 20 through 25. If you've hung out with me much, you've probably heard these things coming out of my mouth in terms of these Proverbs. There's a little cluster here. Verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Much food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for lack of justice there is waste. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. So we made it through Proverbs 13 last time. I didn't get to spend a lot of time on these. This is the conclusion of the of the chapter. And the conclusion of the chapter brings it to focus on sort of the everlasting destination, the last verse, verse 25. And I showed you the connection back to verses 2, 12, and 19, and how there's this relationship to desires and the fulfillment of desires. But we'll be walking through these, and I'd like to draw them out for some time, and uh, hopefully there'll be some value here for you. And my desire is to help you to think about these and how you can draw out an enormous amount of information from these Proverbs, and there's a lot of application to be done. So, verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Paul in the New Testament says, bad company corrupts good morals. These are similar statements. The destruction that comes upon the companion of fools is a destruction temporally, but there's also the everlasting concern. If you're a companion of fools, the likelihood of being drawn into foolishness and the worship of a false god. And in our time, we think of the worship as false, of false gods as a thing you know, like idols and bowing down before them, and we fail to remember that, that we can worship money, that we can worship other things. And so we need to remember there's a danger associated with fools and what they're chasing and our our temptation to be like them. I've mentioned to you on several occasions that you know, I, I listen to a lot of books at two times speed on Audible. It's a useful way to get through stuff that I'm looking for gems on but don't feel like spending a lot of study time on. Sort of my way of broadly reading. Over and over again in business books and things that are about self-management, you find people talking about They'll pick a number. They just make a number up because they feel like it. They'll say, you're the mixture of the five people you spend the most time with, or the ten. Or if it's a kind of like really sprinkling a little bit of Bible on it book, they'll say twelve because it's like Jesus. you know. And so they just people make up a number. Okay. Well, the reality is, yeah, you're influenced by the people you spend time with. And that's the point. And the more time you spend with them and the more influence they have on you, then the, the more impact that's going to have. So it's important to be around wise people. And it's important to separate yourself from fools who will cause you harm. And so, walking with the wise, however, does not just involve the persons you spend time with. There are other things we do that we give ourselves over to the company of other persons. The books that you read are interfacing with the mind of someone else. The music you listen to is especially if it's modern, designed to be catchy and almost impossible to extract with scalpel, sword, axe, or hatchet. Whatever you use, it will be difficult to remove it. Time is the only thing, and even that imperfectly, that washes away the catchy putting together of power chords. There is a power to music that is difficult to remove. Videos, movies, television shows, whatever, these are the projection of people. It's basically as close as you can get to hanging out with the person. And you can see now podcasts. And, and so, you know, one of the draws of podcasts is sort of this sense of like, hey, hey, come have the conversation with us. Take, take a seat. 
And why don't you just keep your mouth shut, but you can listen to us talk and kind of enjoy vicariously our friendship. Right? A lot of the casual podcast thing is basically people hanging out and talking about stuff. And they look for interesting stuff to talk about, but that drawing in. So you can really be influenced by the podcast that is there to kind of be the we're hanging out and talking about stuff podcast. So another influence is games. And video games, especially as they become more immersive, are a sort of catechesis of behaviors. Do this, get the prize. Do that, lose. And so the idea of what happens in those games and the stories of those games can be significant influence. Wise writers of books and music and videos and games can have a positive impact. And foolish writers of books and music and videos and games can have a very negative impact. What you meditate on, what you dwell upon, what you spend your time in. And the other thing about foolish companions, whether they be digital or in person, is they soak up time that does not get to be used for prayer or spending time with the wise or reading scripture or meditating or reasoning through things or reading good books or watching good movies or listening to good publications, right? So the consumption of time and our craving for novelty, my craving for novelty is such that you want, I want to find stuff because the eye is never filled with seeing. And the ear is never filled with hearing. And so we want those things to be fed. We must seek to drive away fools and to not be influenced by them. We must seek to influence fools and not be influenced by them. Most of the time, I started with drive away because what you expect me to say is we want to try to influence them and if they won't be influenced, then we need to drive them away. Most fools will not be influenced. Have you been listening? Proverbs talks about how they won't listen. Fools won't listen. Fools won't listen. Apart from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, the fool will not listen. So you try to influence them, but your expected result is that you will drive them away. If you seek to be righteous in the presence of fools, if you seek to be wise in the presence of fools, if you seek to apply the law word of God in the presence of fools, if you seek to rebuke them and tell them, don't do that, that's wicked, don't do that, you will generally drive them away. And so if you find that you're spending lots of time with a fool and they're not driven away and they're not being influenced, there's a problem with your behavior. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Do you actually believe Proposition 2? The companion of fools will be destroyed. If you believe that, if you believe that, you will seek to drive away fools and also try to influence them. You won't drive them away unjustly. You will drive them away with truth and goodness. But if they then respond with wickedness, if they're lashing out, right, then there's an intentional removal. The law of God is a goad. And it goads people to righteousness or it goads them to get away from the goads. If we spend a lot of time with the person, now, who we spend time with, this is the most powerful influence. Spending the time around the wise tends to make you wise. Their example of speech, the way they respond to circumstances, the subjects they focus on. Think about that. The subjects they focus on, the things they spend their time on, 
are a form of catechesis. It's a form of instruction. It gives you an example. It causes you to say, why, why do they spend their time in this way? Why, do they, why is this the thing that gets attention? Hey, people talk about newspapers and the separation of opinion from journalism. What you report on is entirely based upon bias. You are saying, by putting a thing in a newspaper on a news site, this is worthy of note. That reveals assumptions. Why, why don't the front page of newspapers talk about you know, how thick the grass is and how tall it is in the plains of Wyoming? Why isn't that the front page of the New York Times on a monthly basis? Because nobody cares except for ranchers. And there's an economic value that we associate with that. And so you go, okay, those people who are dealing with that in that place, they care about that. We do not care. And so a broadly selling newspaper does not sell that information, doesn't put it out there. They choose what to focus on. And instead, that would be, you know, the example of the grass yield in Wyoming or Montana would be better than a lot of the things that end up on the front page of the New York Times. More useful more helpful, more encouraging to godliness. So, the, what you choose to report on is what a news site shows itself in terms of its opinions oftentimes, as well as the information in the articles. And you can set up an opinion pretty easily with the pet facts you report. A wise person and a foolish person will show you sort of their own biases more by what they pay attention to than almost anything else. The outlay of time. And so when you spend time with the wise, what they spend their time on is something that you kind of get drawn into. And they point out things that make those things more interesting. You can walk around a garden and think that it's beautiful, but when you know the types of flowers and the types of plants, it becomes even more interesting. You start to be able to analyze it better. You start to be able to see the difference between things. You can, you can see the range of possibilities in terms of that type of plant. And so you, you start to see it with deeper understanding. I've said this to you a lot, right? The thing I use is this is you're able to see that thing now in high definition. And so the whys help you to figure out what are the things to become well-versed in. And there might be some things that are peculiar. Jesus was very wise and knew more about carpentry than most other wise men. That was his particular dominion calling, the performance of carpentry work under his father, his adoptive father, Joseph. But when we look at that, that's still a category of work and he spent 30 years working at that before beginning his public ministry. Why did he wait until he was 30? Because Levitical law requires that public office is entered into not earlier than 30. And so, how he spent his time, we focus our attention on the public ministry of Christ. There's a lesson to be learned about how he spent his first 30 years and not just his last three and a half. So if you walk with the wise, if you spend time with the wise, you are influenced by them, and you see the example of their behavior and what they give focus to. You see how they speak and what they speak about. The kinds of questions that are asked. You see how they respond to circumstances. You see the methods they use and how they choose to change things and when they admit that something is better. Also, do you think wise people tend to hang out with wise people, or do you think wise people tend to hang out with foolish people? You will be thrown into the circles of other wise persons. And so the benefits of spending time with the wise start to multiply. And all of a sudden, those other five or ten or twelve, depending on which book you're reading, people get swapped out as well for other wise people to spend time with. If you are single, 
the people you spend time around are likely the networks from which you will draw your future spouse. And so, if you connect with the wise, you are more likely to find a wise spouse. If you connect with fools, you are more likely to find a foolish spouse. And there is nothing so ruinous as to connect oneself with a foolish spouse. With books, it is possible to entertain oneself with books. We think of reading as almost in itself good. Right? It's in its essence. The very nature of reading seems good. We, in the culture, it feels that way. That's because most people don't read. Most people don't read, and so reading is rare. But reading, if you read foolish or frivolous things, or things written by foolish people, you can get in the pattern of looking for the surface level amusing of a story. And one of the things that happens is you need more and more fantastical stories to be amused. It is difficult for a philosophy book to compete with Harry Potter. The more romantic, the more fantastical, the more difficult it is to put that down and replace it with wisdom. Just like with food, healthy foods have a hard time competing with junk food. Good reading has a hard time competing with junk reading. And the same is true with music and movies and games. There are general tendencies about amusement, about boisterousness and, and sort of calamity and all of the kind of big noise words that you can think of, right? If you're pursuing amusement that is very attention-drawing, it's going to make it harder for you to deal with thinking about something, engaging thoughtfully. And if you like to engage thoughtfully, things that are noisy and bright and difficult to spend much time on any one thing will start to become noxious to you. You train your tastes. And so, who you spend time with, what you read, what you listen to, what you watch, and what you play, you are choosing to help yourself either begin to enjoy the wise, or you are helping yourself to become cordoned off from the wise, and to be trapped with fools in an invincible ignorance. That invincible ignorance is principally the lack of desire to listen and therefore to learn. When we are with fools, the goal must be to not be influenced by them, but to influence them or to drive them away. Now, what tends to happen is we go to the text where Jesus is hanging out with sinners and we go, see, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and harlots. And so I can hang out with tax collectors and harlots. I don't think anybody here wants to hang out with tax collectors. Why do you want to hang out with harlots? Is it to become like them? Okay, so... This desire, right, what happens is we fail to realize in this parable, we're not Jesus. We're the sinners. Jesus hangs out with us. Right? We just sung about how he spends time with the lowly. We're the sinners. Right? So if we're the sinners, then the danger is we think we're righteous and go in to hang out with the sinners. And we think we're portraying Jesus in that way. There's a great line from Sun Tzu's Art of War. Let me read it for you. The general who is skilled in defense hides in the most secret recesses of the earth. He who is skilled in attack flashes forth from the topmost heights of heaven. Thus, on the one hand, we have ability to protect ourselves, 
on the other, a victory that is complete. You might think if you're a general who's really good at defending, that you can just go into wherever and you'll defend well. So don't worry about it. I don't need a great place to defend from. I'm a good general. I'm just going to defend wherever I am. And I'm a good attacker, so I can attack places that aren't the weakest point. I'll just attack wherever I need to. Wherever's convenient, I'll just attack there. I don't need to come up with a particularly great assault plan. That's not how it works. The people who are best at a thing are always grabbing the advantage. So the guy who's the best at defense is going to take the best defensive position and then defend well. The guy who is good at attacking is going to find the best place and time to attack and then attack well. So we need to not kid ourselves. We don't want to pretend like I'm so righteous that I can go hang out with fools and not be influenced. And we need to realize if I want to be wise, and if I am already wise, then I should continue to engage with the wise and seek to either drive away or influence fools and draw them into the sphere of the wise seeking to learn. We are prone to pretend that we are less influenceable than we are. I can watch that. It doesn't bother me. That doesn't, that doesn't tempt me. Interesting. I thought you were human and that you had a sinful nature. I was wrong. I did not realize that you were the second coming of Christ. If you think that you can put before your eyes wickedness on a consistent basis and not be influenced by it, you are deceived, friend. I have to keep relearning that because I'm more foolish than I would like to think. And so we have to realize that we need to walk with the wise and put wise things before our eyes and to separate ourselves from fools and foolishness. If you are so good at avoiding sinful temptation, and why are you defending yourself incompetently and attacking incompetently? The idea that the good defender takes the position that's easiest to defend and the wise attacker attacks at the best point. Now, attacking foolishness is best done with the word of God assertively and seeking to embarrass the fool in their foolishness. The fools don't like it, so they will run away quickly. Doesn't mean we're trying to be jerks. You look for the opportunity to do that. You seek to remove all the stumbling blocks except for the truth. But that doesn't mean you take five years to get to know the person and let them get to know you before you start to seek to persuade them that Christ is king. It should be very fast. People should know you're Christian very fast. People should know that you think that they should also be Christian very fast. And they should be aware that it is common parlance and common conversation that you focus on Christianity. And you apply it to the things you talk to them about. That will either influence them or it will drive them away. And the reason we don't do it is because we don't want to drive them away. Because we don't believe that the companion of fools will be destroyed. Verse 21. Evil pursues sinners, but the righteous shall... Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. The righteous walk with the wise. Sinners are the companions of fools. Their own circles feed back to them the things that they give. The actions of sinners tend to bring toil and strife to them and encourage death. The righteous do things that tend towards fruitful work and peace 
and longevity. This is the general rule. You reap what you sow. Evil pursues sinners. They're sinners, so they've been doing sin, and so they are now sowing evil. The righteous reap good, and good is repaid. You reap what you sow. The more you put in, and the more pure you put in, over time, influences what you get back. The more useful, fruitful things you do, the more positive blowback. The more effective and pure, useful, fruitful things you do, the more effective and pure, positive blowback you tend to get. Now, what have I said many, many times while going through the book of Proverbs? Is this mechanistic? Is this every time, all the time? No. Is this the general rule? And this is the way you should operate and the way you should generally expect things to go? Yes. And we're all tempted to go. The general rule doesn't apply to me, at least not right now, so I can be anxious. This is the general rule. You reap what you sow in quantity and quality over time. Doing righteousness, applying the law increases blessing. Sin increases cursing. There are, in the Bible, this this is magnified out across generations. To the third and fourth generation. Or to the thousandth generation. Acting in faith is far more powerful than the negative destructive power of sin. And also, multi-generational curses, right? Do you notice any sin? Do you have any sins in your life that you know have been the sins of your ancestors? Do you have any tendencies that when you look back over the way you were raised, the way your grandparents were, whatever, do you have any of those? The association is with two things. There's two key doctrines about that. One is the doctrine of traditionism. It's a fun word. You practice saying it. Traditionism. Traditionism is the doctrine that your soul, like your body, is not created ex nihilo. It's not created from nothing at the moment of your conception. But rather, just as your body is made from the bodies of your parents being mixed, your soul is formed in procreation through the mixing of the souls of your parents. Now, it's said that Abraham's descendants were in his loins. That Levi, in the loins of Abraham, tithed to Melchizedek. The idea that your progeny are present in a way, not that they are already conscious, not that they they're, they're already individuals who are responsible. Well, God has predestined it, and there's a means. And the means of the formation of the soul is we pass on the corruption of our natures to our descendants through this practice. A procreation. God does not immediately create sinful souls. The passing of corruption of nature occurs by the procreative act of the souls of the parents and the formation of a new soul in conception. And so there are as a passage of, of sort of personality elements. And so if you tend towards anger or lust or pleasure seeking or whatever, there can be connection back to a multi-generational curse. Is that unresolvable? No, it's resolvable. It's resolvable in Christ who takes all curse for us. And so you can pray that that be removed. You can ask God to remove it. And you use the ordinary means against it. Evil pursues sinners. And cursing goes through generations. And that can be removed. It can be stopped. So if you are aware of something that's a multi-generational sin tendency something that's been passed down, what you do is you pray against it. You ask the Lord to remove that curse, to deliver from it, 
You ask him to remove the power of sin in that way. And you take the word of God and apply it against that area where there's a sin tendency. And you realize that it's a stronghold. And that comes through traditionism, but also that comes through the fact that parents obviously have a dramatic impact on the raising of their children. Evil pursues sinners. To the righteous, good shall be repaid. If you reap behaviors that encourage good health, sorry, if you sow behaviors that encourage good health, generally it's going to reap good health. If you sow behaviors that encourage wealth, you're generally going to reap wealth. If you sow behaviors that encourage the growth and wisdom, you're generally going to reap wealth. If you sow behaviors that are going to encourage good relationships, you're generally going to have good relationships. If you sow behaviors that generally increase your dominion and power, you're going to generally have more dominion and power. Is any of that surprising to anybody? That's what the book of Proverbs says over and over again. Verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. It's pretty easy to make enough money to give something to your children. All you have to do is eat less than you make. It's a lot harder to make that go across generations. You either have to neglect your children so severely and focus on making money so much and building trust systems that are so effective that the foolish children cannot blow it all, or you have to seek to make money and train the children and see them grow the estate. Now children, the best way for you to build wealth is to seek to be useful parts of the estate of your parents. Parents have access to more money than you do. Parents have more access to connections than you do. Parents have more access to skills and tools than you do. Blessing your parents, working on the household estate, and seeking to build it up is the best way for you to advance your own station in life. The alternative is you go to people who are not your parents and seek to work for them in the same way that you should have worked for your parents and then try to get them to favor you like you wanted your parents to favor you and then seek to get some of the wealth from those people's estates instead of your parents' estate. That's what corporate America is, right? They go, other people own things. If I work for them and make them like me, then I can get money from them. You can also do that with your parents and bless them. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, if you instead don't care about the law of God and you want to pursue wealth, you can pile up mountains of silver and then God will not use it for what you intended it for, but instead He will use it for the righteous. So you can either willingly seek to bless the righteous with your talents and wealth generation, or you can unwillingly give your talents and wealth generation to the righteous. In either case, you will give your talents and wealth generation to the righteous. Now, this leaving an inheritance to your children's children, this inheritance, the inheritance I encourage all of you to leave to your children, is first wisdom and skills to be able to do things, to exercise the law of God, to accomplish things, and then wealth. Wealth is useful if you have skills and wisdom. If you don't have wisdom but you have wealth, you can pay for skills. But if you have wealth and skills, then, sorry, if you have wisdom and skills, then you can manage wealth very well. And you can use it to accomplish great good. Now, I talk about wealth a lot from the pulpit. Like, a lot. 
Why do I do that? Because I have a love of money, therefore I'm disqualified from the pastorate. Or is it perhaps that the Bible talks about wealth a lot? I think the Bible talks about wealth a lot. The book of Proverbs talks about wealth a lot. And we spend a lot of our waking hours trying to work to get money. That's a part of the hard reality of life. And as you work to get money, you are then seeking to use it either to feed your selfish desires, or you're going to use it for some bogus God. Yourself could be a bogus God. Or you're going to use it to glorify God and to extend your own dominion. A lot of life is the management of time, talents, and money. If you're not applying your Christianity to that, then you're not going to leave anything to your children or your children's children. Institutions are worthless when they don't have any money. Institutions are worthless if they don't have good people in them. Good people tend to make good pay, and therefore it requires money to attract them to work in good institutions. You want to build an institution? You need to also generate wealth. And so, what part of the inheritance we can leave behind are institutions. If we here worship purely, preach doctrine well, and then do not apply the word of God in our lives, and don't generate any resources, our impact on culture is going to be very, very small. We're going to have very little time to disciple people. Am I worshiping money? No, it's not the money that does it, but it is an ordinary means. And so you work hard to deal with that. And you get your children to understand how to run things and how to deal with money. If they don't understand money, then the likely result is that it will be a mystical power to them. And that mystical power of money will seem like a solution and cure-all to problems. If you understand money, then you understand it has dramatic limitations. And if you understand money and make money and then apply the law of God to it, you find that having more money means you have more jobs. And so just like seeking a bishopric is seeking a good work, seeking wealth is seeking good work to do, or else it's the worship of money. You're seeking to make money to do more good work, or else you're worshiping money. Now, the training of children to run an estate means you have to have the insight about how to run an estate. Here's the most basic insight about running an estate. Spend less than you make. Here's the second basic insight. The excess that you take, you have to divide it up. You have to have a plan for it. The first thing you need to remember is the first 10 cents of every dollar goes to God. That's the bless That will bring the blessing of prosperity. We're told to test him in that and to see if he won't fill up our barns. The next thing you do you take care of your immediate duties. And then with the excess beyond that, you seek to invest it. And investing looks like being generous, buying things that generate more money, being hospitable. Because hospitality is an investment that's spiritual and can also generate networking opportunity to do business. Now, spending money with intention, with purpose, The third thing I'd want to focus on there, besides just dividing it up, planning, right? You're budgeting essentially what you're doing with your money. You have to have the money that you're planning to invest. You have to identify something to buy that is going to make more money. You identify something to buy that's going to make more money. And if you do that, then what happens is you now will not only make the money that you were making from working, 
you now also make the money from that capital. And then, as you make more money from that capital and you continue to work, you have more to buy more things that make more money. Now, as you're making money on those assets, you tithe. And see if the Lord won't fill up your barns. This is the general tendency. You know the basic elements of the wisdom of tithing is it forces you to count your gain. The tithe causes accounting. What did I bring in? What did it cost? And then you account for it. And all of a sudden you go, I know what I'm making. And I know the amount I'm supposed to give to God. And I've got the other 90%. And what do I do? And the Sabbath has the same effect on time management, by the way. Okay, every week, one day, I've got to give that one to God, focused on God here. And so now you know that's there and you've got to all of a sudden start preparing for the Sabbath. And you go, okay, how do I spend my time in between these Sabbath moments? And you've also got morning and evening worship and they make you also track time. And so you begin to number your days past just today. You go to the week. And so this accounting of time and this accounting of wealth that's established in the law of God makes it so that we begin to do the basic functions that are necessary so that we can manage an estate well, so that we can leave an inheritance to our children's children. Notice how the belief that the world is going to end any moment and we don't need to plan for the future would seem to be contrary to this general principle. The belief that the Lord blesses to the thousandth generation and that we're only a hundred and something in, would tend towards long-term planning. That would tend towards long-term planning. There was a study that was done on on Jonathan Edwards' descendants. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor. He ran his own farm. The church forgot to pay him for like a couple of years. And he managed to survive and so did his family. And his wife was very industrious and ran the farm. And so there was a study, they educated the children carefully. There was a study that was done on what happened to his descendants. I don't remember the number, but you can Google it. It's pretty fun to look at. You will find an enormous number of judges, doctors, lawyers, governors, senators, representatives, state legislators. You will find an enormous number of them proceeding out across generations. What you do with your life sets a trajectory across generations that is so hard to fathom. If the Lord tarries for dozens or hundreds of generations, what nations lie in us? I've told you this before. Benjamin Franklin said, if you want to do well in life, pick your grandfather wisely. You cannot pick your grandfather, but you get to pick what kind of grandfather you are to your grandchildren. Building the resources, pulling them together, Training the children, refusing to hand over the inheritance to wicked children, handing over the inheritance to godly children. That process is the process by which the dominion of Christianity, of Christians, the discipleship of the nations is elevated. The process, we talked this morning about debt, the types of debt. Charity loans to our brothers who are deserving. Investing, taking business loans, not borrowing to consume. We seek to help our brothers. You know how we help our brothers to avoid 
borrowing to consume. The diaconal office is there for that. And so you have the voting to give help from the church to make it so that if there's a need based upon something that's occurring, the giving of money for that purpose, without having some sort of an interest-bearing element on it, prevents an enslaving of the brother. It's a type of helping to redeem out of slavery and to get on good footing. An intentional effort to place where there's sufficient assets to provide for self when possible. That is the effort. That is the relief of the poor that we are called to. And the goal is to help them to leave an inheritance to their children's children. Verse 23. Much food is in the uncultivated ground of the poor. And for lack of justice, there's waste. Verse 24. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him early or promptly. Think about this. Verse 22 and verse 21. right? The good that's repaid to the righteous. The idea of leaving inheritance to your children's children. That's going to relate to productivity. And productivity is best encouraged by justice and discipline. Productivity is discouraged because there's a lack of justice. Much food is in the uncultivated ground of the poor, in the fallow ground of the poor. For lack of justice, there is waste. Now, that's in the state. And in the household, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Why is that? Because he's trying to make him into the righteous. And verse 25, the righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. Discipline in the home with the rod and justice with the sword in the state brings about prosperity to a people. The ground of the poor, we've talked about this, tends to not be cultivated because of the fear of loss of the gain. It encourages laziness because the thought is, if I do the work of managing this thing, I won't get to keep my gains because there's some sort of oppression. So corruption prevents productivity. Now, the poor are poor either because of laziness or hardship or lack of time. The lack of time, what I mean is this. The, the biggest correlator with wealth is age. So if you work and you apply the principles of Proverbs, as you get older, the probability of you becoming wealthy is higher. So, I'm talking about wealth a lot. It's interesting. There seems to be a lot in the Bible about wealth. I just thought I'd bring that to your attention. The poor are poor because of laziness or hardship or lack of time. Talk about the lack of time. For hardship, you know, there's natural processes like economic up and downs, but the wiser you are, the more you can manage those decently. Um, there are disasters and plagues. You can have a health problem yourself. There could be human crime or war that causes problem for you. You could have demonic problems, you know, Job having demons stirring up things that occur. And that's real. And that's what a diaconate is for. The hardship for the worthy recipient. And also the extended family is for that. And so you want to manage your relationships well. But laziness is the principal cause of poverty. Laziness to think about how to use resources and talents. Laziness to do the work. Laziness to deploy resources. And so what are the things that tend to help to make it so that the fallow ground of the poor is cultivated? How do we change the uncultivated ground into cultivated ground? How do you take resources that aren't being used and encourage them to be used? Well, 
Hunger urges people to work. The lazy are urged to work on by their own hunger. You do not eat unless you work. If you don't work, you don't eat. That should apply everywhere. In the household, broadly, the state shouldn't provide welfare. The church should not give diaconal assistance to people who are unwilling to work. There has to be a tendency to encourage the keeping of the fruits of labor for those who do the work. Work is rewarded by its own fruits. I think I read that somewhere. Oh, yes. Verse 21. To the righteous, good shall be repaid. They reap what they sow. And if you don't let people enjoy the fruits of their own labor, you discourage work. Violators of property should be punished. And they should be forced to repay it with a multiple what they've damaged or stolen. That reduces the cost of security because of the concern of what you have to repay. And it reduces the cost of punishment because they pay for themselves. An expensive justice system that is slow to act discourages productivity. If trials are easy to gain access to and swift to conclude and cheap to deal with, Things can be managed quickly, which is why a highly decentralized court with not much to do should exist. One elder for every ten households, what would they do? Not very much. They would spend most of the time managing their own affairs. And then every now and then they'd have to deal with some sort of minor property issue. And that would be resolved very quickly. What do we have on the docket today, Jim? One item. What do we have for the rest of the month? Nothing. Great, well, let's take that one. Let's do this, and then let's get back to our own business. I'd like to harvest from my fields. That's the effect of a highly decentralized court, is you have very little to do, and stuff gets managed fast. These aren't full-time judges sitting around in the biblical system. Paying unprofitable corporations and subsidizing them, corporate welfare is theft. Establishing monopolies by law and regulation to keep out competition, those are ways that you prevent poor people from being able to farm. Sorry, you can't farm on your land. It needs to remain fallow because you haven't received the FDAAA Q2 license of whatever. And how would people possibly, how could people eat food that you just grow out of the ground without somebody to make sure that it's safe? Sell that to somebody else? That's a crime. This is the kind of nonsense that goes on. It's, you go outside, you open a lemonade stand on the non-Sabbath days, don't get a license. Tell me what happens. It's a crime to make lemonade and sell it on the side of the road. You know what should be a crime? If you poison it. You know, it should not be a crime if you just put lemon in it and sugar and water in it and you sell it at a profit. That's a good work. Much food is in the uncultivated ground of the poor. I saw a guy the other day on the side of the road where I normally see somebody panhandling and he was selling bottles of sealed water at a markup. I didn't need any water. I wasn't thirsty. I wasn't going to drink it. I threw it away. But I bought it from the guy and I said, thank you for working and here's a catechism. That guy was actually working. He was hustling. He was running from car to car going, do you want water? You know, like holding up a little sign for a price. That guy was doing something of value. And it was totally illegal and it was righteous. There's much food in the uncultivated ground of the poor. And the reason is because of a lack of justice. Trained dependency is wicked. 
and we the public school system and the licensing systems and those things train people rather than looking for a way to solve a problem for somebody for a profit to wait to be told what to do now there's an old Jewish saying if you don't teach your son a trade you teach him to become a thief so part of your duty dads is to train your sons and moms you train your sons and daughters to get past red tape and to not say oh the red tape I can never do anything there's a lion in the street like it's a paper tiger get over it Red tape is not a problem. You know what you do? You figure out how to make money and someday somebody's going to knock on your door and extract some money out of you. And if you're making money, you can pay for it. And then you know what you're going to do? You're going to hire somebody to make it so you never think about the red tape again. Just do godly service and make money. That's how you deal with it. You get things started and you figure it out. And this is how basically every business starts. You start worrying about the regulation once somebody has found that you're making money and there's money to milk. The lack of justice in the land is what causes waste. And the Federal Register creates more laws on a yearly basis than it would be necessary to fill a phone book. You're not going to keep up with the laws. Lawyers can't keep up with the laws. Lawyers specialize on what portion of the new laws to follow. You can't keep up with them. They are not legitimate. And so, study the law of God. Apply the law of God. Serve your neighbor. Parents, discipline your children to make them productive. Make them do work. you spare the rod, you hate your son. If you love your son, you're going to discipline him earlier promptly. So loving your children means you'll use the rod on the back, but hating them means you will be slow to discipline, or you'll never discipline. Derek Kidner in his commentary in Proverbs says, that he says about this proverb, there's a hard way to wisdom, and it's better than the soft way to death. The hard way to wisdom is better than the soft way to death. If you have children, spank them. If you are a child and your parents spank you in teaching the Bible, be grateful. A hard way to wisdom is better than a soft way to death. Sparing the rod is defined as you know, not giving it as early as you should, but also not giving as often as you should. You should give the rod to your children early in life. You need to train them, discipline them early in life. It's easier when they're early. It's easier when it's early in their life, when they're young. Easier for them, easier for you. Prompt upon a violation is important. And giving due process. Saying, here's the thing that was violated. Giving opportunity to answer. When there's obvious foolishness that's continuing, it can be legitimate to have ongoing and swift penalty with less of that. Verse 25. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. The righteous has something to eat because you reap what you sow. And the righteous, when he eats, enjoys it. Because he gives thanks for it. He has the blessing of God upon it. And it's more enjoyable. The stomach of the wicked shall be in want. Because they won't have, because they reap what they sow. And when they do have, they're going to not enjoy it. And there'll be the curse of God upon it. Now remember, this is the last of four kind of key verses in this section, in this chapter. Verse 2 said, A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth. But the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. Speaking and teaching and leadership, being prophetic, priestly, kingly with your speech, 
generates a lot of value. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. Taking decisive points energizes you to take more decisive points. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. You have to be aware of foolishness in your own heart and being influenced by fools because it's difficult to influence fools. They have a false god. It's easier to drive them away because they find it abominable when you attack their god. And so unless they convert, you will drive them away. And conversion takes a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul. For the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would help us to apply these things. I ask that you'd help us to see that the book of Proverbs is, is rich with information and application, that you would cause us to turn away from our own foolishness and to seek wisdom and to seek to be the companions of the wise and not fools. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.